Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Zach to the Future. I'm your co-host, Dashiell Driscoll, joined by Mark Paul Gosler because Mark Paul is always here every single time. Hello, Mark Paul. How was that intro? Yeah, I've heard better. Uh, You've done better, but I'm going to say regardless, hello, Dashiell. Okay, well, that was a, what a, what a equally good welcome to my intro. Uh, And we're also joined by a very special guest today, none other than the man who wrote the episode we will be discussing, Bennett Tramer. Hello, Bennett. Hi guys, very very happy to be here. I like the show. I am I'm so excited to have Bennett on the show today. I feel like he possesses the key to the many questions that we have. Bennett, I, I started following you on Instagram and I noticed that you were you were commenting on us commenting on jokes you specifically had written, which was so fascinating to me as a as a resource. Cause we, we kind of speak anecdotally about things we think are funny or what works or what was a little odd. So, so thank you. This is really cool for you to be joining us. Like a family reunion seeing Mark Paul again. I, I don't think I've seen him since the nineties. He, he did a guest spot on the new class. I followed his career. He's much more than Zach Morris, as we all know, NYPD blue and Franklin and batch and pick up. I think, I think your agent here, Mark Paul <laughs> just picked up on mixed dish. So, you know, he's done a lot of stuff, but this is for me, he's Zach. Yeah, we haven't seen each other in thirty plus years. I, I, I haven't. I, this is the first time that you and I are seeing each other. That's true. How do we look? Uh, older. <laughs> <laughs> don't answer. Please don't answer those questions. Thank God it's audio. You guys both look great. Uh, and it should also be noted that Bennett, you were a writer producer on over a hundred and forty episodes of the New Class as well. Yeah, I've been to more proms and taken more midterms than anybody in history. I think. Well, we have a real say by the bell expert with us today, and thank you again. And uh, just in case you didn't do your homework, here is a very brief summary of The Friendship Business, the 11th episode as aired of the original Say by the Bell. The students have to start a business for class. Zach comes up with the idea for the gang to sell friendship bracelets. They fight over who gets to be in charge. Kelly, Jesse, and Slater split off to sell a competing product, Buddy Bands. Zach creates a toxic work environment, and Lisa and Screech join Team Buddy Bands, a business Zach sabotages by giving one to Belding so they're no longer cool. The gang makes up and combines their two failed businesses into a successful product called Love Cuffs. The end. That's the friendship business. So, Bennett, this was this was uh, episode eleven in the uh, first season of Say by the Bell. We're not we're not saying that Miss Bliss is the the first season. Basically, we'll go back into Miss Bliss. We'll cover some of it, but for the meantime, we're we're talking about you know the first real uh, season of Say by the Bell with the new cast. Um, was this wasn't the first episode that you wrote for the show? 
No, the first one I wrote, you guys are very nice about uh, The Gift. I'd never written a sitcom episode before. That wasn't, you know, I'd written for comedians and TV movies. This is my first sitcom episode. And The Gift, I sort of, that was, that was my proving I could do it. And uh, Tom Tanowich, who's the real head, head writer, said after that, I want to hear from you on story. That was my forte was story. Did you have a relationship with Peter Engel before you got the job? Yeah, Peter liked a TV movie that I wrote for NBC called Poison Ivy about summer camp with Michael J. Fox. It had some of the same themes as the friendship business, how competition can tear friendships apart. And I'd written a pilot for NBC for the Lawrence Brothers, uh, you know, Joey, who was in um, Blossom, and Matt was in, I guess they were both in um, one with Neil Carter. What's that? What was the name of the one with Neil Carter? Hey, you genius guys. Ashley, you know almost everything. Do you want me to? Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, You've been listening well, to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you also wrote me that. <laughs> email. Uh, what was the Nell Carter with the Lawrence Brothers show? Give me a break. Give me a break. I think was the one. Give yeah. Me a break. So Brandon Tartikoff, who had liked my TV movie, said, write a pilot for these guys. And the writer's strike happened. And the writer's strike was very important for Saved by the Bell, I think, because of this huge writer's strike for six months. And we came off it all looking for jobs and Saved by the Bell was the first thing that came along for a lot of us. And um, in all honesty, you know, I wanted to write primetime stuff, TV movies, more stuff for comedians. And a friend of mine who was head of Warner Brothers TV saw me (laughs) and said, what are you up to now? And I said, I'm writing a sitcom for NBC. He said, great, when is it on? And I said, Saturday at 10. And he said, ah, interesting, (laughs) interesting because it's usually too late for a comedy, but it's a good idea. NBC Smart, it's a good lead on for Saturday Night Live to have a comedy show at 10. And I said, well, actually, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And he just looked at me and patted me on the shoulder and walked away. So that, that, was, that was the feeling that you were going into the minor leagues, like you wanted to play for the Dodgers and you were in the Sacramento Bees. Who knew? I mean, I don't know. Did you think, Mark Paul, this was going to be something that would become this iconic show no we've discussed this in the past that every every season i thought it was canceled we never knew it was almost like a last minute decision by the network to bring us back yeah 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 it was, it was like you know i gotta close the garage door oh yeah when we do save by the bell it was like this last second thought also mark paul when you're writing kids shows you have the it's hard enough being a teenager which i think we got across in this show but you and the others were like you know 14 or 15 and our livelihood depended on how good you guys were. I mean, it's like if, if you're shitty, we're out of work and have to look for another job. Did you ever feel that, that like all these parents on the cast, uh, Dennis Haskins and the writers and people on the crew were dependent on, on you being good? Did that ever occur to you? Or No, it never occurred to me. I mean, I, I, I'm in that position now where I understand it very, very <laughs> immensely, uh, you know, ratings and, and um, how good we're doing. But uh, again, we, we operated in this vacuum, um, which I think lends itself to the innocence of us on, on screen and the joy that you see exuding from us. Um, you know, even as specifically in this episode, we we took it very seriously. We we had a lot of fun, and what you see on screen is very genuine because we weren't business persons. You know, we we were doing it because we enjoyed the work, we enjoyed the people around us, and and that comes off on screen. And I think that's why we're still talking about it 30, 30 years later because um, because it was it, it was it was good and it was fun. Uh, and, and, and genuine. 
Yeah, and it's in its own stylized, sometimes absurdly stylized way, there was a reality to it. And I think part of it, when I was listening to the to the um, Zit Cream one, Cream for a Day, that actually Scott Gordon wrote it and wrote a great job. But the idea was mine. Peter said to me one day we met and he said, are we going to come up with ideas? What did you care about the most in high school? And I said, to be honest, zits, pimples. It was just, you know, it was a Cuban Missile Crisis going on all of that. But zits were the things that really worried us the most. Everybody was concerned about it. And then when I listened to your show, to, to Zach to the Future on it, you said you had zits and were worried about it. So just something as, as small as that is something teenagers can really relate to. And I think the fact that you guys were going through the same things at the same age as the characters you were playing, which isn't always true. A head of the class that was, uh, you know, we'll take our midterms and then we'll file for Social Security. I mean, those <laughs> actors were so old, you know, 28 playing 17, but you guys were the ages, and I, I think that that brings a reality to it. That you're going through the same things the characters are going through. That's one of the hardest things for me as well because I'm watching myself grow on screen for you know millions to to follow along with and that was hard for me uh i was aware of it then which is one of the reasons i never watched the show uh uh-huh. until now um so this particular episode um this is really the first time i've i've seen it uh was about a few hours ago uh making notes f- you know prior to the show you know i've noticed in other episodes you, you said you have trouble watching them and you really think you suck yeah and uh, I 100% agree. No, no, I, uh, <laughs> I, I compare you to Laurence Olivier in that because I read this interview with Olivier once and he said when he comes off stage every night, he thinks this is the night I'm going to be, uh, that's the night they found me out. I'm not really this great actor. And I think it's just part of being, being a creative person that you look at stuff you did and you see all the mistakes. I mean, B- Billy Wilder, this great director that, Two movies that probably influenced me the most when I was a kid to be a comedy writer is Some Like It Hot in the Apartment, these great movies. And he, I read an interview, the same thing. I don't think he was trying to sound cool or humble or anything. He said, I really have trouble watching my old movies because I see, see things that I could have done so much better. I think that's just the nature of the, uh, the craft, the show we're going to talk about. You know, it has its highs, but it has its lows too. I, I just think you never get it exactly right and you kind of have to except you're going to be displeased with some of the things you see. I'm so glad there's not a video component to our podcast as I'm rewatching these episodes because I cringe uh, when I come on screen. It's just something I do. If I say a line and, uh, or, or, or my body language, uh, I, will, I will physically cringe while watching myself. Um, but it's been a learning process. I mean, I've had to let things go and, and know that I'm not in control of it anymore and and move on. And it's, it's you know, uh, that's not what this podcast is about. I, mean, I know that sometimes we, it, it, it seems like it becomes a therapy session, but for uh, for the most part, we try to keep it fun and light and, you know, understand that the the audience doesn't pick up on those things and and, and, and neither should we at, at times. But um, yeah, and, 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 you know, there probably are scenes where you could have done better, but, but <laughs> don't let that, well, anybody, I can say that to Cary Grant. I mean, this, but don't let that obscure your viewing the scenes where you really nail it. Cause there, there's a scene in the one coming up with uh, you and Belding that I think is, is just absolutely great. And you're great in it. Well, that you bring that up and we'll get to that scene later, but you bring that up. And that for me was a scene that was more rooted uh, in the emotions that I felt I was better at playing. Um, 
But you were I, great at those building scenes. I didn't. I never considered myself to be a comedic actor. I still don't. Uh, I, a few years back, I I went on uh, as a favor from my buddy Brecken Meyer. Um, I'm sure I know Brecken. Yeah, yeah. Not too he many people did, do. He almost did the Wicked Stepbrother. Yeah, not too many Brecken. people know who Brecken is. So I'm glad you do, Bennett. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, you, no, Brecken. He, he, he's famous for being unknown. No, he's. Uh, no, he's he's good guy. You guys, what, how many seasons was Franklin Bash? Four seasons. Four right? seasons, yeah. And I carried I carried that fucker the whole time. Uh, I mean, I literally <laughs> I carried that. him. He's so small. Okay. I carried him like uh, Chewbacca and C three PO. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I I I did it as a favor to Brecken. He he's he's a super talented writer, and he was a showrunner for Men at Work, which was on TBS, and I believe it got three seasons. Oh. Um, and he asked me to be a part of that, and that was a straight sitcom with an audience just like uh, Saved by the Bell. Yeah. And I what I took from that evening of being on that show was one, I never want to do a sitcom ever again, and two, people who do sitcoms like Danny Masterson, who was on that show. It is a tool, it is a muscle that they're so good at and it's so refined, uh, but the timing and the comedy is, is something that I don't feel I possess. I'm not sure if I had it then. I mean, I look at it and I go, okay, we got through these shows, but I don't know that I'm necessarily a comedic sitcom actor. So when you see, a, a, this goes back to the scene with Belding in the, in the locker room. Is that's yeah. where I came from? I came from more dramatic roles, and right before this, I had done a, a movie with Alan Arkin uh, called Necessary Parties, wow. where um, uh, you know, very dramatic role, and uh, I felt much more comfortable doing those types of roles. So it kind of goes back to um, what I'm doing now on mixed dish comedy. Uh, my previous uh, show, The Passage, and before that was Pitch. I could do pitch and passage all day long. I struggle with shows like Mixedish. I have to put a lot more work into that uh, than I do on on some of my other projects. Mixedish had some very serious moments too, though. It's it's just not all laughs, which is good. I think it's comedy, but there's real dramatic moments too. Which is why I ended up, um, you know, when, when that script was on the table, I I said, you know, this I I see legs with this. I see a future, and and I was attracted to it because of. The sort of serious tones mixed in with with comedic uh, light. Um, I, yeah. I, 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 it wasn't. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't like a straight comedy. My last straight comedy was a was a sitcom for NBC in 2015 called Truth Be Told, uh, written by um, uh, DJ, uh, uh, and and um, that I felt I I bombed on. Um, but you know. <sighs> Uh, again, I, th- I, have, I, I, f- I have some scripts. I have some scripts in my drawer. I can show you that uh, might might be the same <laughs> level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, let's get back to this episode because this is yeah. That's, that's, what, what show is this? Oh, Saved by the Bell. That's right. That's right. Saved by the Bell, the friendship business. So, uh, just so you guys know, I'm watching this on Hulu, and uh, I thought because I heard an ad for Peacock that it's free, I decided to download the Peacock app, app as well. Uh, because later on in the season, uh, Saved by the Bell, the reboot is coming on Peacock. Um, so I, I, I watched it uh, first on Hulu, and then I decided to watch it on on Peacock. And I, I found that on Peacock, uh, it is the original opening titles with uh, us, um, what, it, what appears to be from the very first season. Um, so I'm going to give you two questions here, Bennett. One is there's a different theme song. Well, it's the same theme song, but it's sung by a different singer on the Peacock yeah. version. And then two, 
if you could please answer, because we've had this question for this entire season so far on our podcast, but are we seeing uh, the episodes aired in a linear fashion or are they just all taken from different times and and well have, having worked on saved by the bell the term linear fashion has no meaning for me <laughs> because well right from the beginning as you know the first show we shot on saved by the bell was king of the hill you wake up kelly kapowski is your goal slater's is his first day in school and that should be the first show that was aired but because we had a, a crew the crew became great the, the crew for that night was a game show crew and they had no idea how to shoot a sitcom. So it was very poorly shot. Peter didn't think that should be the first show that we air. So, and that sort of set a tone where, you know, the kids would wind up trick-or-treating on Thanksgiving. <laughs> it just like things, things just didn't follow. And, and, it's, and then we have the adventure shows where in the morning, the first half hour would be like the first day of school. And the second half hour would be them working at a beach club because it's summer vacation. And I, th- I think, Dashiell, you've commented on this. It's, it's just, the shows were shot in a logical order, but they were aired in an illogical order. And then syndication, um, I think you just like throw cards up in the air and see how it goes. But they, there, there is a real structure to the shows and the way they were shot, but it doesn't really seem to happen that way when they're aired in 1990 and in 2020. So um, they, they tend to run the six together. They'll run the six beach club shows together in syndication, things like that. But but there's a real, I don't know, Dasha, you commented on this, how, how things just don't, it's its own logic. It's like one plus yeah. one equals 37. It's, 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 By my math, it seems like a, a healthy balance of sort of the network um, Meddling with good intentions, I, I would imagine. I'm sure there was a thought to, well, people don't want to watch all Beach Club episodes, or you got to start with some. <laughs> I mean, to hear that there was a game show crew filming King of the Hill is pretty <laughs> you funny. That? Uh, yeah, I, I actually can. Uh, but also, I think it's one of those things where they didn't, again, just no one really thought this conversation would still be being had all this time later. So I'm sure the decisions were made with a lot less, uh, lot, lot less weight. Yeah, you know, one thing they did hope for. Uh, like Mike Paul said, they didn't quite know what to do with it. But Brandon Tartikoff, you know, I knew because he liked that TV movie that I wrote, the summer camp movie. Um, he did have the notion if this really takes off on Saturday morning, then we can run it. Because syndication, it's a very different world now. Syndication was where all the real money was. Uh, <laughs> as Mark Paul would say, some real money because we were a Saturday morning show. But the residuals reflect that. But you wanted to have a show that would run four seasons that you could syndicate, and especially with a show for kids, Brandon said, you know, if we're really lucky, we can syndicate this, strip it at 3.30 when kids come home from school and, you know, want to avoid their homework. The challenge for the writers then is you aren't just writing a Saturday morning show for tweens, which was our audience, 8 to 12. If you know the goal is to have high school kids also like it coming home watching it at 4 o'clock, then you've got to write a joke that is not over the heads of a fourth grader, but not too infantile or juvenile for a 12th grader. And that's very hard kind of writing to, to you think where what your humor was when you were eight years old versus 18 and our stories and our situations and the jokes we were conscious had to appeal to that. Like if you're writing for adults, the 30 year old gets, 30 year old gets the joke, a 40 year old, a 50 year old, a 60 year old, as long as you don't have specific cultural references to one generation. But, but writing for kids, 
that gap is is harder than some might realize. Are there any stories behind that uh, theme song, Bennett? With with the, um, uh, I mean, like I said on this Peacock episode, that only I think this particular episode there's a different singer. Uh, yeah, and it sounds like like it's a fan singing along with the original singer, and they cut out the master track. Because <laughs> I think I don't want to insult it, Michael Damien by name, but I, th- I think that's. Uh, I think he sang it for some reason. He was a soap opera star. And so they, on NBC, so I guess to hype the soap opera and why they thought eight-year-old kids would be more impressed by having the star of a soap opera sing the theme song. But for a little while there, the theme song was sung by a guy called, he's a good singer. It's just so different from the theme song you're used to hearing. So some of those episodes early on, the theme is, and struck me the first thing when I started watching it too, that's a different weight. That's not the usual voices things. It so it was Michael Damien for maybe a season. I don't know the name of the original singer, but he's very rich, whoever it is, because that every time you have this show, that that plays, all, you know, all over the world. It was Scott Gale who wrote, Gale uh, wrote the theme song, right. uh, but not who sang. No, no, I don't know the original. It. It's become this iconic song. I mean, he did a good job, whoever it was. Right. Yeah. The uh, the story as it goes was Peter Engel had one instruction for the theme song when he tasked multiple composers and he said, I just don't want the title of the show in the song. <laughs> and that was the only that was the only real note he gave. And only one guy did not adhere to the note, and his name was Scott Gale. Uh, and he is more successful in life for it. Yeah. Because Peter Engel heard the song and said, oh, this is it. I was, I don't know if he said I was wrong, but he well, Peter, gave the job Peter to Scott. Would, um, if he saw something was better than what he thought, he would acknowledge it. I mean, he's such an interesting guy. Peter had a very short kind of attention span. And I think he was smart as can be and still is, but I think that helped his show. I'd sit with him in editing and he'd be like, you know, crossing his arms. This is boring. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut that line. I'd say, you know, Peter, that line's really important to this story. And he'd say, cut it, lose it. We can always put it back. Or this line's delivered too slow, lose it. And I'd say, I mean, this, this is sets up and... Not always, but I'd say at least half the time he was right. It's amazing what you could lose. And, and Peter used to say to us, no baby steps. I don't want to have Zach saying, I got an idea and explain the idea. Zach has, I got an idea, cut to them doing it. He just really wanted to keep the show moving. And, uh, you know, deserves a lot of credit for that. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We are in the class at Bayside uh, to kick things off, and everyone gets the news that um, they have to start a business for their class project, and they were up all night, but but made no headway. So I'm going to start right away, Bennett, with uh, asking you, what's the story with Zach's hair? Do you do you have any? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't involved. Wasn't it Allison? Was she the hair lady? I forget. Uh, I, I wasn't involved with that too much. Your hair would change thickness and color 
and uh, sometimes seems very soft. Other times could double for a basketball court. It was just, just very, I, I had no say in that. Did, did you know that I had to get my hair dyed every two weeks? I, uh, yeah, I, I knew that you were a dark-haired guy. What was the feeling that people thought blonde guys are more teen idols? Because the actual teen idols are Elvis Presley and, you know, dark-haired people usually, the Paul McCartney, if you think about it. Uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I think because I used to be blonde and when I uh, auditioned for Miss Bliss, my hair was very short and all the natural blonde highlights that I had I uh, were cut off. And um, uh, my mom decided to put highlights in my hair when I auditioned for Miss Bliss. And I was cast for that, and we kept that going through the run of the show. Uh, but in this particular episode, my hair is a little darker, so I think I'm at the end of my dye job. If, again, we were uh, showing the, this in a, a logical fashion, uh, the next episode, my hair would probably be lighter, but um, because, like you said, we, sh- we, we, we show it in an illogical fashion. Uh, who knows what's going to be next episode? Oh, is Paula, Paula still around, I hope, right? Yeah, my mom Paula is still around. Um, yeah, she give, doesn't give put... her my best. Because the parents, the parents, you're doing a kid's show. There's so many things that aren't necessarily true about an adult show. You really had to have good parents on this show. Because, you know, if, if the kids are not brought up in a way where they don't give a shit and they don't do what you ask them to do, it, it really creates trouble. And I thought that we're very fortunate with the parents. Maybe that's Peter Engel casting the parents as much as the kids. But the parents were very cooperative, never, never really a problem at all. Nice people. Not a very funny comment, but, but true. I think that's a huge reason why I turned out the way I did, as well as my, my castmates, um, because our parents, our parents kept us uh, on the straight and narrow, and, and um, there was no paradigm to work off of. You know, It's like my, my parents had no idea what we were doing. Um, they just knew that... Uh, I had to be professional, show up on time, know my lines, uh, and perform. Um, but the whole aspect of fame and fortune and all that, uh, I never did it for that reason. They didn't really have a sense that that could actually be something you do it for. Uh, but now I see so many people getting into the business because of, because of the, uh, for, for those reasons. Um, sometimes you do, you see these parents that, that are a little more savvy than they should be. Uh, and it reflects yeah, on the children. And, and the kids aren't always nice. There was one one movie I wrote where the lead kid was like 14, and I get there on location, and he said, uh, hey, let me show you my trailer. I want to show you my trailer. And I thought, oh, it's great. He's the first time he's a lead in the movie to show me his trailer. We go into his trailer, and he said, I'm the star of this movie. Look at this piece of shit they gave me. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> at 14. And, and I don't want to mention any names here. But, uh, you know, that's, you can be very cocky and arrogant. Hey, I'm 14. I'm starring in a TV show. And our, our kids weren't like that. They, they, they uh, no. like Mark Paul said, it wasn't all about getting famous and showing off. It was, you got a job to do, let's do it. And, and the writers really appreciated that. I had no idea that I was a star of the show until probably syndication until 96 when, when we oh. were syndicated. I, 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 I I saw this as a collaboration between the cast and it the is. crew, and uh, but even at a young age. And I think uh, I, I just saw it as we're all here to create this product, uh, and each of us is equally important. Um, I treated everyone that way, uh, and and I'm not sure if that came from the top down or or or, or what, but that's how I saw it uh, for the for my tenure on that show. Well, that's great. 
And speaking of tenure on this show, that brings us right to the teacher of this class, Mr. Tuttle. Yeah. Uh, played by Jack Angelus. Angelus was, according to the internet, so it's probably true, right? He was an accomplished debater and took his high school debate team to win first place in New York State in 1966. Well, I thought Mr. Tuttle was a good character. I think I think he's this episode sometimes flags a little. I think Tuttle has good energy and keeps it going. And uh, Peter really liked the script, Mr. Tuttle. He said, I got a great guy to play this part. I said, good. And then uh, he said, all right, Jack Angelus is going to be here. I said, what, to sign our checks? Because Jack Angelus was a business, remember his name, Mark Paul? He was a business affairs guy. I didn't know that. He signed our checks. Yeah. He, I didn't think huh. that. He started laughing. He said, what are you laughing about? He said, well, Jack, the guy at the NBC breakfast with a perky pig kind of voice. He said, yeah, he's very funny. And I had no idea that he was an actor, uh, and he's really good in it. The table read, he was like a Stepford wife, because it's like, no, I'm an actor, and it's sometimes, you know, that lively, talkative, funny voice he dropped. <laughs> it was like, you know, okay, class. It, it was real, and I was worried about him, and Don Barnard said, don't worry, I'll work with him. And then he was really good in the rehearsals, and Don was he said jack just be like you are when i see you in the halls just talkative lively so he went back to playing himself instead of acting but it was a shock that jack angelus was doing it yeah that that's really interesting because i wanted to ask specifically if when you wrote these teachers if you had specific actors in mind for some of these roles or it sounds like you just wrote mr tuttle and then peter stepped in and yeah peter stepped in um no, I wish I would have had Carol Lawrence in mind. I couldn't, I was shocked that we could get the star of West Side Story to do it. Peter, Peter knew her. Um, no, no, and I certainly didn't have Jack Angelus. I just thought, I hope my check comes in time. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. no. Yeah. yeah, but he's real. I think, I, what do you guys think? I think he's really funny in this show. I, I really like his rapid fire delivery. He's one of the ones as a viewer uh, who I was one of those people who came home and at 3.30 put off homework by watching <laughs> Say by the Bell. So in syndication, he was one of the teachers who I remember. He's certainly one of the the standout Bayside teachers. Uh, and I was surprised to check his IMDb and see he was, I think, in six episodes or maybe five. Yeah, I know the Glee Club he's in. Mm-hmm. And I think he did a new class episode. Well, he, he and then he and Belding got into it. You and my turf. And I, yeah, no, Jack was great. It was a real surprise. My standouts in this uh, scene are the surfer dudes with the uh, cardboard... <laughs> uh, cardboard and surfboard that that's a good up. idea i mean you can't do it with cardboard but i looked at that and i thought if you could find a wooden board that folds in thirds you could put it on top of a mini cooper and go surfing it's uh it's a good idea it's not a bad like, product yeah and then would jeff spicoli be in uh inspiration for the surfer dudes yeah Jeff spicoli and just people you meet in california Hmm. Well, SNL did that like in 2010, like it was some new idea, the Californians to have that long drawn out vowels, dude, that's, when I did this, I thought that might be too much of a cliche already, actually, probably that's been done before, but the idea was good. The nerds are broad as always, but I I like the, um, but the pocket protector protector, I think just sounds funny. I don't know, probably a stupid idea, but it's a funny word, you know, phrase. When I was watching this episode, the surfer dudes reminded me, I, I, that guy's voice reminded me of a voice I'd heard recently. And I, I had to Google it, but it's the party bros, Chad Kroger and JT Parr. I don't know if you are you, ah, you familiar with these I, guys, Bennett? I've heard it, but I'm not familiar with it. The name rings a bell. No, no pun intended, rings a bell. Yeah. 
they've they they got started out going to like city council meetings, which are recorded and televised, so very shrewd on their part. Ah. And they would do things like request to build a commemorative statue of Paul Walker, uh, or create a essentially a halfway home for when one of your bros kind of sucks in the group and you kick him out. <laughs> uh, so they kind of took like the the surfer, you know, quasi stoner talk to another level. <laughs> And presented people in public service with it. It's, it's a really, and now they have a great podcast. Yeah, they're they're phenomenal. And I'm wondering if this was an inspiration for them. Huh. You never know. You never know. And the, the class, you know, of course, Zach just pulls out that plan at the last second. Uh, and everyone gets a $100 bill in an envelope, which I thought was just lovely. <laughs> uh, never happened where I went to school. Uh, I'm not familiar with places where that did, but I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of dough in 1989. Does it bother anybody just looking at this as a writer? I mean, I think the the other kids who aren't our leads are funny, but it's a, for me, it might be a little bit too much opening with people who aren't our regulars. I mean, even though they're funny, the nerds and the surfers, I, I, just just a thought. And for future writers, be careful you don't throw too much stuff to the uh, the people who aren't your regular cast. So how, we we have a question about that though, Bennett. I mean, what did you would you write? Um, in your script, would you just say student one or student two and then reach out? Or, or would the, the ADs then give it to one of the background artists? Or would you have a background artist specifically in mind while Sometimes writing? Sometimes I would. The kid who says, um, when do we eat? That, that character's name was Alan, I think. I had him in mind. There was a, a nerd called Sylvester I had in mind. Sometimes you'd write... There was this uh, uh, black kid who was really funny. We had a real deep voice. I'd write lines for him. So again, it's, it's collaborative. Uh, you know, it's like I wasn't the only writer. You're always working with other writers. But in my case, there were a few specific nerds. I think this would be really funny for him or her. There's right. A because, girl nerd who was really funny with classes. Because uh, Alan is the slightly heavier yeah. set nerd. So him him asking, when do we eat? That's, you know, that's just good comedy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's so interesting. So in a group of nerds, you'd kind of know who you'd want to give the line to. Yeah, so to speak. Often anyway, yeah. In my case, huh. I can't always speak for the other writers, but yeah, I, I would. I'd even write Sylvester in the script, you know. It's, and just to give credit to this actor uh, who played Edgar Poindexter, his name was William Joseph Barker, and he will be in four other episodes of Saved by the Bell, so yeah, we'll keep good. an eye out for him. He was the taller uh, nerd uh, with the idea. The ringleader. Yeah, the ringleader. So now we're in uh, Zach's room, uh, Zach has a plan, uh, and then yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to get filthy rich selling bracelets, <laughs> uh, and he, it brings us into a fuzzy pink fantasy in Belding's office. Whereas you know, in Zach's wildest fantasy, he is still confined to Bayside, kind of like The Shining or something. Uh, he just can't leave the halls. So right, before, I, I got to point this out. Um, we we go into this uh, fuzzy pink uh, fantasy, and uh, on on the wall behind Zach are these um, framed. Uh, I would I would imagine magazines or articles that say National Celebrity Business Watch, Watch U.S. Examiner. I, I while watching this, I had to call my wife into the room and say, "Hey, babe, we have these, right? I've seen these before." The, and she goes, "Yeah, they're they're actually in our storage unit." Uh, I had these and I had no idea, no idea, no context why I had these. I thought they were sent to me by a fan, um, but I, I actually have these originals uh, in my storage unit. Watch out for break-ins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Bennett, did you, were, were fantasy scenes, were they fun to write? They were fun to write. And I always thought, like, like in this fantasy, 
I don't endorse what's going on in this fantasy. I mean, this is Zach's egomania taking over. And I, in this case, it's like the fantasy, what if he actually acted on these thoughts and it just almost tears the whole gang apart, you know? So this, this is just because you show something doesn't mean you're proving it. I think Zach is really pretty, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to say trash. I could plug that. You know, he's not a very good guy in this fantasy. And um, fortunately he, he, Tries to act it out and everything. Everything uh, it creates a lot of trouble. I mean, it's funny, but but what he's doing is is I don't know. Not to be moralistic, wrong. And um, I tried to have shortly after this what he wants people to be like in the fantasy. They become the opposite. Like Jesse, this sort of subservient uh, assistant here. But when you go to the bedroom, she says, "I've had it, bub. I'm walking out." The same thing with Slater. So, um, yeah, the fantasies are often just like the girls that he's like 16 year old girls imagining getting married to a 30 year old teacher. <laughs> it's, you know, watch out for that. Uh, but it's wrong, you know? And, and so it's, it's, this is like, just cause your mind goes to some place, you shouldn't necessarily act it out. Also, um, well, there's an unfortunate reference to Bill Cosby, which I wish wasn't there. It's what can you do? He was, he was the richest guy then. I thought, who's a famous person that kids would relate to? But um, I'd make it Bill Gates if I were writing it today and put it, put it that way. You'd keep it a Bill joke. Yeah, you you Bill. don't want to sacrifice the structure <laughs> yeah, of the joke, good, but yeah. you want it, right. There was a show on called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which just celebrated you know, having as much money and as much property as possible. So it's kind of a parody on that. Like you say, Dash, <laughs> in this tiny room where the whole world takes place. But was, and, and Justin does a very good Robin Leach here. He does a very, great very, Robin Leach. Yeah, it's in my really notes. Parody. So it was, it was, well, that's always a danger. You hope that even if kids who are watching it now have never seen Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, it works on its own because it's a funny character. But at the time, it would have been even funnier because it's a parody of a show that these kids might have watched with their parents or something. Yeah, that show ran from 1984 to 1995. Uh, Robin Leach, uh, he's now playing Robin Screech. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good, very well unintentional. Done. It just fell right in there. It, it really did. Yeah, it's a very fun little bit. And uh, yeah, it does kind of like showcase almost like the um, Gordon Gecko level opulence yeah. of the late 80s of this like ex- extreme wealth uh, glorification, you know, dollar signs on the shoes and all that. I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed that because I was trying, you know, you're... you're in some way, and it doesn't always succeed, echo some of the things that are wrong with the world. You know, I don't think kids will say, oh, I'm going to run an honest business from what if I become a businessman, but that's, you hope that gets in there a little bit. So I was trying to show shitty business ethics or no ethics. So Bennett, um, th- this is the second episode that I've noticed that we have uh, political figures in. We talk about the Bushes. Um, there's yeah. a joke about Dan Quayle. Very well done with that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, a question Again, for you. I, I, you know, most of it is mine, but I can't guarantee that joke was mine. It might have been one of the other writers in the rewrite. Just, just to be fair here. I mean, it's, you can tell who wrote what episode usually. They have like, certain touches. But at the same time, it's a collaborative medium. So, well, did that brings me to this question? Did did personal politics ever enter the writers' room at Saved by the Bell? In terms of promoting certain political points of view, well, it's interesting because it, the run that I got through this entire episode was Zach. The way he's conducting business is is, is sort of a Republican value, uh, and and he even points out that if Jesse were to run it, it'd be a very sort of Democratic uh, liberal. 
uh, uh, way of running things. You know, well, is I, that- I didn't realize how topical we were, but uh, yeah. So I guess it is taking a sort of political stance and, and to watch out for business. I mean, corrupt big business is is um, a real issue. Well, it's interesting because you, you back in 1990, you use terms like, and Zach says this in, in, in the next, uh, in the next scene, but he says things like, you know, to run a business, you have to be ruthless, cunning, and, and, and tough to be the president. And he says to Jesse, he goes, uh, uh, he basically calls her a liberal snowflake because he says, Jesse, you're just a sensitive marshmallow, Yeah, which well, I think that, is so interesting horrible. because these are the terms we hear nowadays. <laughs> Yeah. It is trashy. Uh, yeah. But again, I'm not endorsing that, but that's, that's what he's like there, you know? Uh, and also you could argue, Mark Paul, in, in defense maybe of your character, that's your wildest fantasy. You do try to act it out somewhat, but this is Zach's brain really run amok. You do a sort of smaller version of it, but you know, you sort of learn. And as Dashiell's pointed out, the next week you're up to something else. <laughs> But that's sort of, I guess you could say that's documentary accuracy because the kids in my high school, there were certain kids who were kind of trying to see what they could get away with and they'd get caught and they'd serve their time in detention and the next week they'd be up to something else. So maybe that's just just what kids are like, you know, because if, if, Zach, if Zach ever reformed, we'd all be out of work. You know, he's, uh, this, is, this is who he is. This is, I guess you could say it's true to teenagers. They, they test limits, you know. How old are your kids, Mark Paul? Uh, I have four. I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. Oh, you're seeing already. Teenagers like to push limits and see what they can get away with. Absolutely. So Zach is, in some ways, the ultimate teenager there. Fortunately, he always gets caught, but not enough to not start next week and, and do something else. But that the troublemakers in my high school, the kids who got in trouble in 10th grade were the same kids. I'm talking about terrible stuff, but just skipping school or you know things like that. They, they would reform and do it again next week. It's just... Uh, I guess people are interested in seeing a show where the storyline is um, Zach, Zach answers all the questions at the end of the chapter for extra credit. I mean, it's, it's, you just <laughs> can't see him as uh, Zach does everything his parents want him to and Feldman gives him a good citizenship award. It just wouldn't, wouldn't play. When we started this um, series, um, Mario talks about us having to um, s- like fill out a, a questionnaire about our strengths and things that we were into uh, is that is that something that you were aware of? Oh yeah, yeah. Especially with Mario, because it seemed like I remember <laughs> I said to the uh, I don't know if Robin Lippin or, or one of the casting directors said how multi talented these kids are. So I said to, to Mario one of the first times I met him. So you were a state wrestling champion, and he said, "Well, actually, uh, tri-state." <laughs> it was like <laughs> three states. It was like I think Arizona, New Mexico, and something in California. So we had a lot of wrestling stuff with him. He had played the drums in uh, Kids Incorporated. Because usually actors, whatever it is, they'll say like, you know, horse riding. Oh, I did that. Shot putting. I was in the And a lot of times it's complete bullshit. But Mario actually had a lot of those uh, qualities. What were, what were yours, Mark Paul? What were your, like, things we could use that you did that you excelled at? Well, I could tell you, I did not excel at dancing, and thankfully that you we guys used that. We used that to our advantage. You're rocking us at dance again. Kids can relate to that. Guys, especially, are worried about I can't dance as well as the girls. So I think that was very real. So did you? Jeez, anything, thanks, Bennett. Anything we could use? Thanks was a lot. Anything listed that Mark Paul's good at this? Was there one thing maybe like like wrestling? And- no, I was good at motocross. Um, I I had uh, raced motocross since uh, the age of five. Um, and, Did we uh, ever use that in this show at all? Yeah, there was or a that, 
me on a no, motocross bike in the in one of the episodes. What episode was that, Dashwell? That was in Pin to the Mat. So Pin to the Mat, Mark Paul is gambling for a dirt bike, and you there's kind of a scene where he stands, Zach stands with his dirt bike and dirt bike uh, tire, and that felt kind of oh, if you guys had filled out a form of your interest, that would. That would make sense. I remember when I called about you before I saw you, they said in- inherently likable. People who work with you on McBlitz. Because I think that helps with Zach, who does do some pretty awful things, but you like, there's something likable about the character. I, mean, I remember that was, that's not really, I guess that is bigger, more important than his skill, but they said he's inherently, the audience is just like him. Audiences like this kid. So there you go. Did you have focus groups for Say by the Bell? Uh, we did have one focus group who didn't like it. And uh, Peter, fortunately, just uh, didn't didn't go with it. Yeah, we did have a focus group. I, again, I worked my way up. Tom Tenowich and uh, deserves a lot of credit for those earlier shows because he was the original head writer. I, I kind of worked my way up and, and learned a lot from Tom. Um, but yeah, I wasn't invited to it. I think probably Peter and Tom were there. But the focus groups, uh, I probably still do this. They'll say like, what character didn't you like? And no one will say anything. And they'll say... Well, if you had to pick a character, or what character did you like the least? And then finally they'll say something, and the focus group will turn in, oh, they hated whoever it is, Screech, or whatever. <laughs> and it's, they beg this negative shit out of you. And Peter said, uh, Fred Silverman, who was president of NBC and ABC in the Roots days, uh, Peter used to use this quote, they said, well, if you were running a network again, what's the first thing you would do? And he said, abolish the research departments. Because uh, they aren't, they aren't, it's not a real natural situation. I would just show it to an audience and see if they laugh or not and not, not try to beg negative stuff out of them. Well, a real advocate for our show was always, um, was always Brandon Tartikoff, correct? Yeah. Brandon, you know, that's why I don't knock all studio executives in general and network executives because Brandon really was, I, I miss him. He's a good guy and he really cared. He really supported this show. And Warren Littlefield, who came in, is one of those lucky combinations at NBC. We had network support. Uh, Linda Mancuso, Robin Schwartz, all these people, these names I'm going to meet. Me, Mike Paul knows them. But the, the president of the network is behind you 100% and makes such a difference. He would come to the tapings as busy as he was. You know, we had ER and LA Law and, all these other, and Friends and all these other shows. He would, you know, come to the tapings. He'd, he'd leave partway through, but he'd shoot me a thumbs up. And, uh, you know, it's just it's the, the people in most power, if they're behind you, because Miss Bliss was Brandon's idea. He also got in a thing with, with uh, Katzenberg because originally Miss Bliss was going to be on the Disney Channel, I guess it was the Disney Channel originally, wasn't it, Dashiell? Yeah. That's correct. And, and that was Katzenberg, uh, Katzenberg and Brandon, uh, NBC, Disney thing. And then Katzenberg lost faith in it. And Peter said, you know, the kids are so funny. We should just do an overt comedy. Keep building, but lose Haley. And, and a lot of Brandon was, we're going we're gonna to show Katzenberg we can do it our own way and, and be successful. So he, he had a lot of vested interest in that. He also said, um, no scene over three pages, Brandon, which is a really important. He said, you're up against cartoons and you know these great Warner Brothers cartoons that just zip along and, and we want to keep it moving. No scene over three pages. Uh, I just wanted to uh, touch, touch back on um, right after that, that fuzzy pink fantasy. We're in Zach's room and they're having the meeting where there's a there's a power grab and, you know, Zach grabs power and the gang splits up. Uh, but Bennett, I just wanted to point out, Slater brings up the the title of Friends Forever uh, for this business. 
And that actually goes on to become like a core theme of Say by the Bell, yeah. the, the idea of everlasting, enduring friendship. And it's, it's birthed uh, right here in the Buddy Bands episode. Um, I think, which I thought was I, neat. I, I think you're right. I think, thank you. And I think, I think that's the single biggest appeal of Saved by the Bell is, is probably friends. That That's our theme. And this, uh, this episode threatens to tear the gang apart. Yeah. And, and on the note of tearing the gang apart, I also thought it was interesting. This is the first episode where you kind of shuffle the deck here. So it's a mix of the guys and the girls being um, opposed to each other. And I was just wondering if there was kind of a, a meeting or a thought with the writers to say, hey, we can't always have Zach versus Slater. We can't always have boys versus girls. At some point, we need to kind of mix it up a little bit. And this feels to me like the first time I think we're we're seeing that in series. Well, you know, I think that's a good point. I don't remember if we specifically talked about it, but I think that's one of the appeals of this uh, episode is it's not the usual Zach versus Slater fighting over Kelly. It's, it's the different breakup. I, yeah, I agree with you. Great. All right. Well, as long as you agree with me. That, that, yeah, that was the, the, that was, that was the only me, point of that. You told me to never disagree with anything you say before we no, started. I, so. no, I, did, I, I, think, I think that's true about this episode. And it's act two. And uh, we find out that Zach is selling his bracelets in class. And we get the competing Buddy Bands commercial which I just loved. I'm a, I'm a big old fan of the, of the fictional Buddy Bands commercial. Uh, Maria Henley probably choreographed that, who is our associate director, assistant director. Um, but she was a dancer on the TV show Shindig in the 60s. So she performed with all the, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all these people would, would appear and she'd be dancing in the background. And she would be our choreographer. And uh, the lighting, uh, Don Morgan probably was the lighting director on that, who... who Ended up winning 10 primetime Emmys. Well, I just want to thank you, Bennett, for not putting me in that, uh, in that commercial uh, to dance. Yeah. Um, because you, you highlight the three best dancers on our show. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I, I would have brought that whole thing down. Um, and while watching this, that's the first thing I said, thank God I wasn't in that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bennett, are you aware that the LA Times noted Mark Paul's dancing specifically as being bad after the premiere episode? Um, I remember the LA Times was really nasty. Well, they were nasty in particular about two sets of feet, or one set of feet, 10 toes, Mark Paul. <laughs> uh, and they, they took note that his dancing was bad. So uh, maybe you were doing some, some Zach protecting here. I guess the only way to look at that is whoever that uh, reviewer was in 1989, is anyone sitting around looking at her reviews in 2020? <laughs> because there's Just a lot me. of people <laughs> sitting. Yeah, yeah, but for good reason. Uh, a lot of people sitting around looking at, at Mark Paul's dancing. So yeah. time, time, time will tell. Also, it is the three best dancers, but like Tiffany almost looks bad compared to Mario and Elizabeth. They are so good. Like, oh, yeah. They're doing very intricate choreography. Yeah, Elizabeth had studied dance, I think, hadn't she, Mark? Yeah. She had a background as a dancer. That was her background. That was her that was her love. It was uh it was yeah. what she came from, yeah. I think it was described, Mark Paul, in one of the in the first episode you talked to her as her heir. I believe you described dancing to her as like what she breathes. It is like part of her existence. Did I say that, Dash? I, I can't remember that far. I think I I, I want to say you said it, but maybe I'm maybe I'm just wrong. In which case, you know where to find me on Twitter, and uh, I'm there every week, folks. <laughs> That's a very poetic line. I hope you did say it. I think you did. Um, and we're at the max, and uh, so I had a question about Ed Alonzo Bennett, and I I kind of wanted yeah. to know. It seems like he has a lot of sage advice delivers delivered through magic tricks. 
And I was right. wondering if if Ed would show you the magic he could do and you would kind of write his helpful anecdote around it or how, what was the creative process like to incorporate? Well, it was, it was both. It was both. Sometimes he, he had a bit and we'd think we can use that. Other times it was, Ed, can you do something that'll illustrate this point? So it was both him coming up with stuff because he did a lot of magic tricks in his audition that we ended up using in this show. He's a very nice guy, Ed, and it's, I was very happy about the, you know, he only did, I think, 13 episodes. And when the Saved by the Max restaurant became this big deal uh, in Chicago and Los Angeles, it sort of brought him, he works all the time as a magician, but, but he was a real celebrity there. He'd show up and everybody would mob him and everything. So I was very happy for him with the, with the restaurant, with the diner. Yeah, no, he, that was his, also his second trick of the, in 11 episodes that involves bringing out a live bird at a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, which I thought yeah. was just, just could not be more of a health code violation. <laughs> it's true. It's true to probably throw him out in real life, yeah. His advice is to charge a premium. And that's exactly what Zach does. He charges a premium, and the premium being Screech being a friend for an hour? Yeah, it's a, a, exploitation, no way around that. But again, it's wrong. I mean, Screech gives up after a while. So, Bennett, speaking of dancing, uh, did the writers have a thing for writing a tall woman slinging a boy around a dance floor? It sure seems like it. Didn't did Rhonda Robustelli throw you around in one episode? That's right. So I, I thought, like, was Rhonda Robustelli unavailable for this? Because I actually <laughs> thought that was Rhonda when I was watching it. You know, I don't know. We did do that a lot. But what bothers me looking at this, and this is something, I don't know if it's generally well-known, Saturday morning shows, there were less commercials. Uh, they didn't pump up kids with breakfast with breakfast cereals bad for them. There was a limit to how much you could do that. Well, we went in syndication. It was uh, there are more commercials in syndication at three thirty and four. So Franco Barrio, who's working with you guys on, on the reboot, who, who is the line producer with us, had to cut a minute and a half out of every Saturday morning episode. So what you're seeing in syndication, and unfortunately, even in the complete Save by the Bell. There's a minute and a half missing from what aired on Saturday morning that Screech is being sold as a friend. There were three things there. I think this was, I don't even know if this was the last one, but it worked in threes. You see this funny thing with a tall girl, and there was another thing, I don't remember what it was, and another thing, and that's gone. I don't even know if it exists anywhere. So unfortunately, as popular as the show has been in syndication, I, I, I've, Mark Paul and I have really benefited from it. It's you're, you're seeing like 90, 95% of the show, not the whole show. And that particular thing bothered me looking at it. I remember at the time when I first saw it in syndication, wait, there were two other things of Screech you know, being stuck doing something as, as a friend. As a, as a writer, it does feel a little incomplete to the rhythm does, of yeah, how many yeah, does, things you'd it? see before he's exhausted. Yeah, totally. Well, um, yeah, it's about, nothing I can do about it, really, except complain to you guys. But, uh, hey, so, yeah, so we're here for it. Yeah, we're here for it. Right? So Zach has created a problematic work environment. Uh, Lisa takes Screech, and they quit. Um, yeah. Were there any uh, situations in the writer's room or on production that you remember being problematic? With, were, were there, was there a problematic work environment on Say by the Bell at any point during your tenure? I guess sometimes disagreements. They never got too hostile. Um, there are often little complaints because you guys were so young. We'd write a scene where all six of them are in the max, and that's how they all had something to do. And Franco would come in and say, you know, that scene with the six of them in the max, we can't do because uh, Dustin and Lark aren't going to have enough school if they're there rehearsing that. So you got to pull them out of the scene. And, uh, you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong. That was his job. But that happened a lot. We'd have to rewrite a scene 
and pull out characters because your social workers, you know, they'd say, no, no, you're, you're working the kids too much. So there's a lot of writing with your hands tied when you're writing a Saturday morning show. That happened a lot. That happened probably every week. There'd be some scene where can you pull him out or can you put her in this scene? And it all had to do with scheduling. Also something that relates to that when you're working with kids, like a primetime show, they sitcom before a live audience. Let's say they're over like we were Friday at six o'clock. If there are lines that didn't work, They'll just have the actors hang around and come back later and do the lines over again. We couldn't do that because that's child labor laws. You're working kids too many hours. So as we're taping and it gets to be like everything we're doing, we couldn't retake anything. So it had to be right. And we had to stop exactly at six o'clock and no one was coming back. So the amount of time we had to get things right was less than a primetime show or a show with adult actors anyway. So there are a lot, a lot of, um, you can call them either problems or challenges. And uh, that brings us to Act 3, after, uh, after Zach is left all alone uh, with his business that goes under, and he's forced to go out of business. And yeah. uh, he gives a, he sort of gives a smile just to the camera as he's walking away from the Buddy Bands booth. And I thought that was nice work by Mark Paul. Uh, but also great work by Don, Don Barnhart, who directed almost all of these. And we've talked about Don Barnhart, uh, you know, here and there, because he's such a shaping figure of the show. But I was just kind of curious, like, what what kind of character was Don? Because I really don't have any sense or idea in my head. Don, Don is a very warm, nice guy. And he had a great background because he was a technical director, you know, so he knew all, all camera movements and cutting and everything. But he also just had a real, I think Mark Paul would agree, a, a really liked people and liked kids. You know, he had a son himself who was a little, I think a little older than the kids in the show. And he was very good with kids. And he was very respectful of the writers. He, if something was hard to do, he would just come in and say, you know, I can try to make this work. Often it wasn't even the quality of the writing. It was just, it was hard to stage. Or it was, He'd come, come to the writer's room and um, just say, you know, I can try to make this work, but I've, yeah, we shot on Friday. We'd have the table read Monday, the big rewrite and rehearsal Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We didn't want to change too much because you want to learn new lines the day you're shooting the show. And Don might come on Tuesday night or Wednesday and say, I've tried this for two rehearsals in a row. And I can keep trying, but I'm having a little trouble with it. Is there any way you could change it and adjust it? So he, he was very um, respectful of the writers, very nice. I don't, I don't think I ever saw him lose his temper. I mean, maybe he didn't, which is... <laughs> I did. It's okay to do it. Yeah, you did, you did. But, but he was just a very, very nice person. And um, he had been a rock and roll DJ in Seattle, I believe. So huh. with my obsession with rock and roll, we talk about music all the time. But very nice. I thought he was very patient with the kids. Is that true, Mark Paul? No, he was very patient with us. But, you know, again, at a certain point, we're going to push his buttons to the point where he is going to yell well, at us. Well, that's like Zach in real life. Yeah. You push the, he's the authority figure. I mean, comedy is usually the individual against an institution. And, well, it's say by the bell. The kid, the institution is your parents and school and the principal. And Don's this authority figure. So you're just, as a kid, you're going to fight back a little bit. So in the next scene, we open up in the locker room uh, with one of my favorite characters as I've uh, begun this journey, uh, Mr. Belding, uh, working out in the locker room, which is odd on its own. Um, 
Uh, and then to have this conversation that we're going to have. I'm not going to work out in the gym. I'm going to work out in the locker room. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to work out where the other other guys change. Just it seems peculiar to me. Uh, and he also he he starts talking about like how many. It was a it, I mean, obviously yeah. Uh, it yeah. was a budget constraint. But he starts talking about how many cat calls he gets, and something that I never noticed as a younger viewer, and even rewatching it more recently, it's it's only really crystallized on this particular leg of the, the journey. Is he Belding seems to talk a lot about his like previous romantic and sexual conquests, or like yeah. his his status in his own mind as kind of this like Adonis, uh, which is very funny. And I, and I'm wondering if how the Belding character evolved and how much of that was Dennis and and how much of that was the writer shaping it and, and kind of how that worked. Uh, you know, a lot of that was Dennis, who was who was a terrific professional, experienced actor. You know, and I think the kids really benefited from him. We had. That relationship, and, and you know, Belding and, and Zach were in Miss Bliss, which I wasn't involved with, but I think the relationship changed a lot in Saved by the Bell. And my model, and I think was one we talked about, was a show, Sergeant Bilko with Phil Silvers, and he'd always butter up Colonel Hall, played by Paul Ford. And um, that's sort of, and then talking about his wife, like Bilko would see a the colonel and his wife and say, Colonel, who is this lovely young woman? Is this your niece? Is oh, 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 Bilko. You know, it was the wife who's butting her up. And a con man like Zach was. So a lot of this flattery of belding to get what you want came from that uh, Sergeant Bilko show, Phil Silvers. Um, and they liked each other in a way. Uh, I always thought that Zach and belding, it's like an adversary. And there's a sort of weird respect that, Belding is going to eventually <laughs> get Zach to toe the line. He's watching out for him. And it's kind of how well he does his job is how much he catches Zach. But Zach is on to him and knows that Belding's Achilles heel is his vanity. Like you said, like, look at my arms. I'm such a ladies man. And Zach would play to that Achilles heel. He's vain. And if I can just flatter him, I can get away with something. I'll tell you, Bennett, there's a, there's a line in here. That's one of my favorites. Uh, it, it, it's probably because Dennis is saying this and I can't tell if it's Dennis actually saying this or it's something that you wrote for him. And specifically it's a word. And the, the line is we're having a moment here, brother. And it's that <laughs> word brother. Now, do you think that that was Dennis, or did you actually write that as as you know, you know that he I would wish, call me? I brother? wish I knew. If I did write it, Dennis made it that much better by the way he said it. So you know, I, I, some lines I remember really well, but that one, that one, I don't remember if I wrote it or not. But it's, but I, I know I really enjoyed writing the Mark Paul and Belding and Dennis Haskins scenes and this Dustin Diamond and uh, oh, the one gold. you guys liked in, in uh, the gift that I wrote with, with the predicting the future. Yeah. Th- th- those combinations with Belding, Screech and Belding and Zach and Belding just, just really worked. Yeah. I, uh, I, I thought they're great. And just, just as long as we're talking about your writing and this scene in particular, the phrase buddy bandwagon, what a fun <laughs> What a fun little combo of uh, of words! I just thought that was a that was just a fun one for me. If they, if they gave Emmys for alliteration, I would have won that year. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, everything Jack says is like a triplet alliteration, you know. And then something, buddy, bandwagon, and then I just say badly. I forget what that, that well, was. Well, it's that kind of rhythm sticks in kids' ears, I guess. I suppose it works. And, and just at the end, when when Zach says, don't, "Don't you turn to the camera and say it works," right? And it be, because Belding, yeah, because his, of his overwhelming male bonding, which is also a uh, canon, and that Belding will later lead the boys on like a male bonding 
yeah. uh, session many, I think in season three or four. Um, but it is, uh, yeah, he, he does like, he's shocked at how quickly the, the buddy band took over and made yeah. building want to be his and buddy. I like that because instead of Zach saying you, the obvious thing would be, I fooled him or something, give a thumbs up to the camera. Instead, it's a little unusual that his reaction is, wow, Belding really does like me. <laughs> we really are buddies. It's just a little bit unexpected. I think a good good end to that scene. And uh, and back in the hall, Belding is rocking. Belding looks cool, by the way. I think Belding looks cool. Well, it uh, goes with the buddy band. It goes back to the '60s. Like we we envision Belding, uh, you know, and that's why using that word brother just bring. I, I just have this. Yeah. I have a full picture of who Belding was. Well, he wants to be one of the guys in a way, but he's the principal, <laughs> and it's it's a lot of dynamic going on. The contradiction, well, contradictions implies negative complexity to Belding and his relationship with the kids. He is an onion. Absolutely. <laughs> so by Belding wearing these buddy bands, he's basically ruining it for, for all the teens. Uh, Bennett, are you aware that it's Yuri Henley who basically starts the revolution? Where Did you write yes. this for Yuri or was this given to him? You know, I, that I don't remember. I know, but he, he had a lot of lines and his, his mom was the assistant director and our choreographer. Yeah, it is him. You know, I thought I was patting myself on the back, but you've got the successful product. How can you sabotage it? And I just thought it was a good idea to have if Belding wears it, no one will wear it. You know, I just thought it was a funny <laughs> idea. I think I got that talking with Peter actually, like like just how are we going to do this? And we came up with that. But because uh, it's, it's one of these writers' dilemmas. How do you instantly get this popular thing but get Belding to wear it? And there really is a rush there. It's like the second they realize Belding's work, it's like 50 people like dash on the table to return it. It is a fun thing in the halls of Bayside how how when something happens, it, it just the floodgates open and the students yeah, come from yeah. all directions. Yeah. And uh, it's worth noting here that uh, Mario comes in with 500 buddy bands that, boy, oh boy, are they going to do some business today. Uh, but those boxes he's holding, they are in our podcast art. Uh, so we put a couple Easter eggs in the podcast art, and oh. one of them is a couple boxes of buddy bands flying around. Wow. Just a little fun little detail. I like that. And back at the max, you know, the gang's broken up, but surprise, surprise, they reconcile in about 35 seconds because <laughs> uh, of Kelly's heart of gold, you know? She yeah. she cannot stand to look over and see a forlorn Zach, so they're, they're back together. Uh, and they merge their businesses. Um, and Bennett, I want to ask, I wanted sure. to ask you specifically about their their new venture uh, called Love Cuffs, which just sounds like uh, bondage gear. That sounds like a item you would buy in a sex shop, uh, perhaps in Studio City or your San Fernando Valley of place of choice. But Love Cuffs felt like a choice. Well, it was. I I uh, I don't know on a conscious level. <laughs> That's what. I was- <laughs> But, you know, it was tricky friendship bracelets. So I had to think of something else. What can we call them? And I got buddy bands and then love cuffs. Just, just thinking of three variations of friendship bracelets. Yeah, I guess it does. If, if, if uh, what do they say? If you want to see it, it's there. <laughs> but, I suppose so. I mean, I, don't, I think if you, it. yeah, I think if you typed in, you know, love cuffs and do any sort of online search engine, I, 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 I bet that's what you'd find. And I also noted that Screech last week had a jacket that said, fetish on the back of it uh peculiarly enough so there's something something's brewing here at bayside uh it must have yeah so while you may not think you were in a problematic work environment uh you may have actually been uh after the fact might be odd to something uh and zach's hair mark paul would you like to bring us home on uh 
we we get a real nice clear shot of the back of Zach's head in this final uh final scene. You know, besides the fact that I need uh, to get my um roots done, um I am actually pretty happy with the shape of the hair. It's not as uh, cotton candy up front. Um it's a little more tame. Uh so I'm actually happy with my hair this episode. Thank you very much, Dashel. But look, we end the episode with the iconic uh, high five with uh, the gang. Uh, is this yeah. the first time we've seen the freeze frame high five? I believe I believe in series, uh, and again, I might be wrong, in which case, whoopsie, and I'm so sorry. But I think this is the first in series, all hands on deck, high five, freeze frame, uh, which which is iconic and and iconic of say by the bell and of certainly nineties eighties genre television. I think when you want to parody that era, you you do this. You everyone high fives and freeze frames, and uh, it's it's cool. This is how this episode ends. They're friends again, and what better way to see that? Yeah, well, the friendship has been threatened by uh, Zach's egomania, and also it's weird that Jesse partway through gets into it too. Sort of violates her principles and and gets greedy. But they learn their lesson. Yeah, she can't help herself. Big business is just too alluring. Yeah, well, that's the danger. Yeah. Cut, cutthroat competition. Well, thank you, Bennett. You, you certainly taught us some things today, but it, it looks like you were teaching kids some things a long, long time ago uh, with the friendship yeah, business. So. And, and you know, my Instagram, I do, as you, as you discovered, I do a lot of Save by the Bell stuff on my Instagram. So if people want to hear more from me. Please. You can find me. Look, I wish you really good luck on the reboot. It's very exciting to me that it's coming back to life. The trailer I thought was really good with the caffeine pills. So may it, may it be a hit. Well, Bennett, I hope this is not a one and done. We'd love to have you on the, on the podcast in the future. Uh, I feel like we just have scratched the surface of things to talk about. So I know that I could have talked to you for another hour. Please plug your Instagram, by the way. Well, where can folks follow you? Oh, Instagram. It's my name, Bennett Tramer at a little A thing at Bennett Tramer. And uh, it's not always, today's a pretty heavy one, actually. <laughs> but uh, usually it's about, half the time it's about Saved by the Bell. And I have a lot of millennial followers who ask me questions and I try to answer and so on. Yeah, I, I was with you when you got your haircut in quarantine. I've been following yeah. you, Bennett. So yeah, my I'm, wife I'm, did a good job. Yeah, yeah, she did great. So I'm, I'm a seasoned uh, Bennett Tramer Instagram yeah, follow. <laughs> follow these guys too on, the, on their uh, Instagram. Uh, well, please do. And uh, yeah, Bennett, great great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Seriously, it's great. great Mark Paul, great reunion. My, my regards to your family. You too, Bennett. I'm, I, I, I'm sure we're going to have you on very shortly. Uh, happy yeah. to do it. All right. Thank, thank you so you. much, Mark Paul. Thank you, Bennett. Thank you, listeners. Oh, wait, there is homework. I almost forgot before we got on out of here. It's the Mamas and the Papas. So watch it. <laughs> That's that, Mark Paul. Do you have any guesses what the mamas and the papas might be about? Uh, I, oof, no, I, you know, I, I feel like I cheated a bit, Dashel, mm. because okay. um, well, the worst lies are the ones we tell ourselves. So at least you're honest. Yeah. yeah, you know, while I was trying to figure out why the theme song was different, um, I, I skipped ahead uh, to the mamas and papas, and I okay. saw that Screech was with um, Lisa. And yes. it's something to do with like, you know, um, not home economics. I'll put it this way, Mark Paul. It is yet another class project that exists at Bayside that I've never even heard of anything remotely similar happening at any other school on the planet. So you can look forward to that. Okay. And with that, we'll see you next week. Zach to the Future is a production of Cadence 13. It's executive produced by Mark Paul Gosler, myself, and Chris Corcoran. Production and direction led by Terrence Malangone. Editing and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Engineering and production coordination by Sean Cherry. 
Artwork by Kurt Courtney with illustrations by Jeff McCarthy. Marketing is led by Josephina Francis with PR by Hilary Schuf. Thanks to the whole team at Cadence 13 and to you for listening.